This is Cardinal Francis George. I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Word on Fire Catholic Ministries is a nonprofit ministry at the forefront of Catholic evangelization, using new media to spread the faith on every continent. Father Barron challenges us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire. Peace be with you, and a very blessed and happy Easter to everybody. Friends, what's Easter all about? Let me start with this. In first century Judaism, so in the time of the New Testament, there were many views concerning what happened to people after they died. So following a very venerable tradition, some said that death was just the end, that the dead simply returned to the dust of the earth from which they came. Again, it's got very ancient roots within Judaism, that view. Others around Jesus' time maintained that the righteous dead would rise at the close of the age. Think of, you know, when Jesus uh, approaches the tomb of Lazarus and Martha says, yes, I, I believe that he will rise at the resurrection of the dead. That's what she meant, at the end of the age. Still others thought, maybe a bit here under the influence of Greek philosophy, that the souls of the just went to live with God after the demise of their bodies. Think of the book of Daniel here. In the book of Wisdom, you have some reference to this. Some, it seemed, even believed in a kind of reincarnation. Think of when Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And some of them say, well, you know, Jeremiah or one of the prophets come back from the dead. So there are all kinds of views about what happened after we die. Here's what's particularly fascinating about the accounts of Jesus' resurrection is that none of these familiar frameworks of understanding is invoked. They had all kinds of ways to articulate it. None of them is used. The first witnesses maintained that the same Jesus who had been brutally and unmistakably put to death and buried Mind you, Roman executioners didn't uh, botch the job. I mean, they, they knew how to put people to death. That Jesus, who had died and had been buried, was, through the power of God, alive again. The point is, they didn't say he was vaguely with God in some sense, or that his soul had escaped from his body. They're not Greeks. Nor had he risen in some purely symbolic or metaphorical sense, nor were they looking forward to, all oh, this great day at the end of time when he would rise. No, no. Here's what they claim. He, Yeshua from Nazareth, this friend whom they knew, who had been put to death brutally and buried, was alive again. If I can put it to some degree in the perspective of the other expectations, what was expected for all the righteous dead at the end of time had happened in time to this one particular man, to this Jesus. See, as I've said this, I know a lot to you, but it was the very novelty of the event that gave such energy and verve 
to the first Christian proclamation. You know, if they were just trading in these old frameworks, what would be particularly interesting or, or, um, or energetic about it? But on practically every page of the New Testament, we find this grab-you-by-the-lapels quality because these early witnesses to the resurrection were not trading in bland spiritual abstractions or moral bromides. They were trying to tell the whole world that something so new and astounding had happened that nothing would ever be the same again. That's resurrection proclamation. That's Christianity. Over the past, really, couple of centuries, many thinkers, both inside and outside of the Christian churches, have endeavored to reduce the resurrection message to the level of a myth or a symbol. Easter, they argued, was one more iteration of the springtime saga that can be found in one form or another in most cultures, namely that life, you know, triumphs over death in the, quote, resurrection of nature after the bleak months of winter. You know, go back to ancient mythology, come up through the stories of the different cultures, you find this resurrection myth, the springtime saga. Others maintained the resurrection is just a symbolic way of saying that the cause of Jesus lives on in his followers. Well, you know, it was C.S. Lewis, a long time ago, put paid to these interpretations when he observed that those who think the resurrection story is a myth simply haven't read many myths. Mythic literature deals in ahistorical archetypes and thus it tends to speak of things that happened once upon a time, or to bring it up to date, in a galaxy far, far away. Myths are trading in these great abstractions, and they're beautiful, important. I love the myths. But the point is the Gospels don't use that kind of language. In describing the resurrection, they mention particular places like Judea and Jerusalem. They specify the event took place not once upon a time or in a galaxy far, far away. It took place when Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor. We can date that. There are coins with Pontius Pilatus on them. We know exactly when that was. More to it, they named distinct individuals, Peter, John, James, Thomas, etc., who encountered Jesus after he rose from the dead. People that knew him, that had touched him and seen him and talked to him. Finally, everybody, listen. Nobody dies defending mythic claims. Again, I love the myths. I'm not bad-mouthing myths for a second. They're terrific. I love them. I read them. They're extremely interesting. They're very important in the development of culture. All of that. But... Nobody died for Zeus or Dionysus or Osiris. There are no martyrs of Thor. But practically all the first heralds of the resurrection of Jesus went to their deaths defending the truth of their historical claim. I I want that to sink in this Easter, the difference, the difference of these gospel stories and of the people who told them and defended them. Okay, but what does the resurrection mean? 
what are some implications we can draw from the resurrection? I think it means first that the customary manner in which we understand the relationship between order and violence, and I mean from the Epic of Gilgamesh to the Game of Thrones, has to be rethought. Let me say that again. The manner in which we understand the relationship between order and violence has to be rethought. Here's what I mean. On the standard sort of realistic, realpolitik reading of things, order comes about through the violent imposition of the will of the stronger. And again, from ancient mythology all the way to Game of Thrones, that's what you see is relatively powerful people imposing their will through violence. Now, it can be very straightforward, like the violence of a bully on a playground. It can be a much more refined exercise of violence through geopolitical strategy. But the myth remains the same. Order comes through violence. Now, mind you, in Jesus' time, the great principle of order was the Empire of Rome, which maintained its hold how? Through the exertions of its massive army and, and through the imposition of harsh punishment on those who had opposed its purposes. The most terrible and fearsome of those punishments was the cross, a particularly brutal mode of torture. They think the Romans might have gotten it from Persians or from somewhere in the Middle East. But it was purposely carried out in public so as to have the greatest deterrent effect. It was precisely on one of those Roman crosses that Yeshua from Nazareth was put to death. Having been betrayed and abandoned by his friends and condemned by a corrupt tribunal of collaborators with the Roman authorities. Now, when the risen Jesus presented himself alive to his disciples, they, we, they were, we are told, afraid. Now, you could say their fear might have been simply a function of their having seen something uncanny, a dead man come back to life. But I wonder sometimes whether it might have been grounded in the assumption that he was back for vengeance. In any telling of, of a similar tale, if someone made up a story like this, here's an innocent man, a good man, who'd been put to death because of the betrayal and abandonment, denial of his followers, who had run from him at the moment of truth. And if now, in the imagination of the storyteller, this dead man was back to life and he's come to visit those who had betrayed him and denied him, what would you expect? You'd expect he's back for vengeance. See, again, order comes through violence. That's the way we tend to tell the story. But this story is different. After showing his wounds, the risen Jesus says to his friends, Shalom, peace. The teacher who had urged his followers to turn the other cheek and to meet violence with forgiveness exemplified his own teaching in the most vivid way possible. And what he showed thereby was that the divine manner of reestablishing order has nothing to do with violence, retribution, or eye-for-an-eye retaliation. Instead, it has to do with a love which swallows up hate, 
with a forgiveness which triumphs over aggression. It's this great resurrection principle which explicitly or implicitly undergirded the liberating work of Martin Luther King in America, of Gandhi in India, of Bishop Tutu in South Africa, of John Paul II in Poland. Those great practitioners of nonviolent resistance were able to stand athwart the received wisdom only because they had some sense that in opting for the way of love, they were going with the deepest grain of reality. They were operating in concert with the purpose of God. Here's a second implication, everybody, from the resurrection. It means that God has not given up on his creation. According to the well-known account in the book of Genesis, God made the whole array of finite things. Sun, moon, planets, stars, animals, plants, things that creep and crawl on the earth. And he found it all good, even very good. There's not a hint of dualism or Manichaeism in the biblical vision. There's no setting of the spiritual over and against the material. All that God has made reflects some aspect of his goodness. And all created things together constitute a beautiful and tightly woven tapestry. As the Old Testament lays out the story, human sin made a wreck of God's creation. But the faithful God kept sending rescue operation after rescue operation from Noah's Ark through the prophets, the law, the temple, the people, Israel itself. And finally he sent his only son, the perfect icon or incarnation of his love. Now here's the point, everybody. In raising that son from the dead, God definitively saved and ratified his creation, very much including the material dimension of it. That's why the bodily resurrection of Jesus matters so much. Over and again, we've said no to what God has made, but God stubbornly says yes. And it's inspired by this divine yes that we always have reason to hope. That's what Easter means. And God bless you. I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love.